Hi, Nelson here. I'm hoping you're having an amazing week, that everything is going well, and that life is treating you just right. That being said, I bring you another interview with an expert in the field of conspiracism. On today's episode, I'll be joined by a top-tier academic in the field, and as a scholar myself that one day hopes to become a PhD researcher, I'll be sharing my thoughts about conspiracy theories within politics. So before you continue, go microwave that corndog, sit back, and listen to how a podcast host and a doctorate in the field of conspiracy theories engage in the art of academic debate. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Social Chemist Podcast. I'm your host, Nelson Perez, and today I have the privilege of being joined by PhD professor Benjamin Dow from Southern Methodist University. A researcher in the field of conspiracism, his background includes how leaderships can influence conspiratorial thinking. And earlier this year, with the assistance of Cynthia Wang and Jennifer Whitston, he published the article, Support for Leaders Who Use Conspiratorial Rhetoric, The Role of Personal Control and political identity, a research article that helps explain how conspiratorial rhetoric and a lack of personal control can lead to individuals succumbing to conspiracy theories. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great introduction again. Uh, Thank you so much. That's two and two. Yeah, the introductions (laughs) are the hardest for me, but trying to, you know, paint the best picture possible. Yeah. Well, Ben, before we start, I want to say that it is an honor to have you on the podcast as a person that has been studying conspiracy theories for the last two years and a person that hopes to one day pursue a PhD in this topic. You have no idea how much this means to me before. uh, When I was telling my friends about this podcast, this episode, I was just like, oh, my God, look, guys, guys, I'm getting a PhD professor just about conspiracy theories. And I was just so excited. So, again, Thank you so much for, you know, giving me your time. I mean, I'm happy to be here. This is literally part of my job is to, you know, make science accessible for people. And so I I relish any opportunity to talk to something that I'm very, about an issue that I'm very passionate and that I think you share that passion in. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's very important. And I think as we engage with our, in our discussion, I think the listener is going to you know enjoy what we have to say today. So let's just get right into it. And one of the things I wanted to ask, I asked this to my last guest, is what led to you studying conspiracy theories? Yeah, I think like a lot of people that I know that study this, I didn't necessarily set out to study it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a prior career before I became an academic where I was in consulting. And I got interested during that time in evidence-based practices. So how can we use not only science, but how can we combine the science that's out there with our personal experiences, with the concerns of the people that are involved, um, and with the information that we've got sort of about our local context to come to better decisions. And so I got interested in that. Um, And then when I came into academia and was thinking about uh, what I wanted to study, I, I found, I think, 
probably like you, uh, is that as we got into the pandemic and I saw a lot was going on, I think I was frustrated to see that there was a lot of people coming to conclusions, beliefs that were really not grounded in solid evidence. And so I got kind of interested in, in it. It was adjacent to some other things I was studying. And um, once you kind of start down this road, I think it's fascinating. And I, I just kept focusing more and more on this. Mm-hmm. So it just sort of evolved naturally. Yeah, you said that you had a background in business, right? Uh, yeah. And and so how does business interact with conspiracy theories? Because most researchers, for the most part, come from the social sciences where, you know, political science, and they explain conspiracy theories as this political phenomenon. When it comes to business, how does that relate to conspiracy theories? I think, so it's a great question. I think it's an argument that we're still trying to articulate and and make in our field, so I work in a uh, field of study called organizational behavior, and we definitely draw on social psychology and to some extent overlap with social psychology in terms of the things we study and the outlets we publish in. The difference is we try to be extremely applied. So we're trying to help organizations and people thrive. And so I think that there's only, I'm only aware of two studies that look at conspiracy theories in the context of an organization. When I say organization, that can be for-profit company, but it could be nonprofit. It could be just a club, a sports team. We have a pretty broad definition of what that is. Um, But yeah, when we're thinking about how does this affect that, I think what we're seeing is that conspiracy theories are affecting organizations. So think about, oh, what's the name of the voting machine company that's currently engaged in some lawsuits? Do you recall? Dominion, is that what? Dominion, that's mm-hmm. right. Thank you. So Dominion, there's a business that was strongly affected by a conspiracy theory that was out there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we see sometimes companies proffering conspiracy theories. So I can name a few. Uh, right. So if we think about uh, concerted efforts on the part of, uh, let's say, certain energy companies to sow doubt about science um, and uh, the science of climate change, for example, mm-hmm. right? So we could think about companies that are actively engaged in it. The couple of studies that are on it look at how people develop conspiracy theories about the leaders of the organization, right? And that could be a problem. And more broadly, if we think about conspiracy theories fitting into this bigger issue of misinformation, that's something that companies are dealing with, you know? Or imagine a Wayfair, you know? And there's another example of a company that was affected. I was just so, going to name that one. Yeah. So I think there's lots of ways in which it affects uh, the people. So the extent that it creates divisions between people, that affects people's ability to come together and work in an organization. Uh, It affects the organizations themselves. It affects the internal dynamics. It affects how they relate to customers. And all these things can, I think, crop up. That's a great explanation. And when you talk about business models and conspiracy theories, you know, I think the first person that comes to mind is Alex Jones. Like Mm -hmm. he is literally the the poster boy for how to make money off disinformation. And I think since his um, lawsuit in the the Sandy Hook case, others have followed. We see a lot of this from right-wingers. You know, I think, I don't think it's unfair to say that a news or what I consider, I mean, the Daily Wire, for example, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Daily Wire. It's owned by Ben Shapiro, but much of his content is conspiratorial based. It's the left, the LGBT, they're destroying, you know, our Western civilization and whatnot. And he gets a lot of attraction because of that. I mean, on Facebook, 
his organization posts um, daily articles about people that have just passed away without even giving any details. It just says, you yeah. know, there are. Uh, 34 year old man suddenly passes away. And if you look at the comment section on his Facebook post, his followers are just posting, you know, anti vaccine propaganda. Oh, you know, it must have been the vaccine. No, what a coincidence. And so, yeah, I think what you're saying here is that there is a relationship between business models and conspiracy theories. And the fact that it's becoming profit based is very, very concerning. And in a sense, makes it kind of difficult to challenge. Because now, you know, me as a person trying to debunk the Daily Wire, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge mountain to overcome. And so what are some things that to fight back against that type of misinformation, that, that type of, you know, mechanism, that, that misinformation and disinformation machine? Like, what can be done in that situation? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, we're, we're better at explaining why people get into conspiracy theories than we are at explaining why they get out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're saying, that the idea that some people do this for profit is true. I mean, I think you have true believers. I think you've got some people who are sort of a mixture of true belief and mm-hmm. doing it for a profit margin. And then, you know, we did, we can't know who's who for sure, but certainly it seems like there's some people who are purely being driven by the, driven by the profit motive in all of this. Um, one of the functions of conspiracy theories is actually to make you feel good about the groups that you're in, especially if those groups are disempowered. And so you could see why those things are attractive to people, right? It tells you that uh, your group is being, if you're not doing well, it's because some outsider is coming and attacking you and is holding you down, or you are the righteous warriors, or you're the people who see the truth, whereas other people are blind. And it all plays into kind of a self-esteem. So that's one of the reasons, one of the motives behind conspiracy theories to some extent. In terms of how to get people out of these, like I said, it's a tough problem. One of the arguments we made in a recent paper was that there's been a lot of work on things like pre-bunking and debunking. So the idea that it's better to debunk a conspiracy theory before somebody sees it than to debunk it after the fact, that former uh, approach we call pre-bunking. And so that works better. Um, But I think what one of the arguments we were making is that we underappreciate the social aspect of it. So if your identity, if your social group is bound up in these conspiracy theories, so to the extent that conspiracy theories are closely tied to, say, partisan identities, for example, or other large other identities that we have in our life, it's going to be hard to disentangle that in a way that lets us let go of the conspiracy theory. If everybody in our social group and the social group that we care about believes in a conspiracy theory, then how can we possibly detach ourselves from it? There's Have you ever watched the Netflix documentary? Uh, I think it's uh, it's about flat earthers. No, but I, I will after this. So there's a beautiful moment in it where you can see somebody reflect for a moment about how if they right now they're in the flat, this is a leader in that flat earth movement. Mm -hmm. And in that flat earth movement, they're a very big deal. And if they left that group, they'd go back to the mainstream where nobody cared about them, right? They they don't, they're not a big deal anymore. It's Mm -hmm. not like anybody is waiting to welcome back with open arms and they will burn this bridge with all these other people who right Mm -hmm. now are their social connections. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think, and and you can see them kind of immediately, they say that out loud, and you can almost see this reflection of like, oh, I'm kind of stuck in this, right? I can't let go of this belief. So I think as, as long as it's tied to our social well-being, mm-hmm. then, and and this idea of ostr- being ostracized from a group, 
it's been compared to like social death. Like it's that much of a trauma to be ostracized from a group. So asking people to give up a conspiracy theory that would estrange them from other people in the social groups that they care about, that's a lot Mm -hmm. to ask. So I think we have to disentangle those somehow. I don't have a good solution for how we go about doing that, though. One of the questions I want to ask you is because you talk about how social groups are, the social identity is important when it comes to retaining the conspiratorial belief. And in one of your um, articles, I do apologize because I forgot the name of the title, but you talk about how a lack of personal control can lead to conspiratorial ideologies. And one of the communities that that comes to mind is the LGBT community and women, for example, you know, recently women lost the right to, um, federally speaking, to get an abortion. And I mean, that from a women's perspective is a loss of control. The LGBT uh, is a good example as well, where they don't have the same you know, protection from their society. They're often discriminated, marginalized, but you don't see the increase in conspiracy theories among this community. Do you know why that's the case? Um, so lack of control, mm-hmm. that's another one of the motives that people have um, dealing with control, uncertainty, things like that, that those sort of existential threats in, in one's life. Um, that's another reason that people become more susceptible to conspiracy theories. But I will say that that when we talk about these motives, like wanting to feel good about your group and wanting to have a sense of control in your life, they make you more susceptible to conspiracy theories, but they don't necessarily in and of themselves create a conspiratorial belief. You still have to either be able to construct one easily or have one readily available. So I don't know for sure, but my guess would be uh, those groups if you're feeling lowered control, those groups probably just aren't right now being exposed to ready-made conspiracy theories that are easy to pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also put in the caveat that it's it's overall control. So while I, I think all of us in our lives have some things which are removing our sense of control and other things which might be adding it. And when something, uh, a big event like some of the things you mentioned happen, you can respond in different ways. And conspiracy theories are just one source potentially of control. The other thing you can do is increase your sense of personal agency. So get involved in issues, become active. Um, If it's a political thing, you know, can you get engaged in campaigns? Can you join protests, right? That's another way to regain control is to boost your sort of personal sense of uh, agency Mm -hmm. in the world, your ability to act on it. And so that might be is that they're just channeling it into different outlets. Mm -hmm. Makes me, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, The next thing I wanted to ask you is in the study of conspiratorial ideologies, Critics have claimed that researchers spent too much time looking at right-wing conspiracy theories, but not enough time on left-wing extremism. My question for you is, is this a fair critique of the study of conspiracy theories, or are individuals that make this claim creating a false equivalence? It's a good question. It's something we're definitely careful about in our research and that we pay attention to because we don't want to create a caricature of one group as the conspiratorial one. What I will say is the state of the research right now, my understanding of what's been published recently is that conspiracy theories are currently more prevalent on the conservative side than the liberal side. That's kind of a current snapshot. And I would say the data is pretty clear that that's the case right now. That is not to say that there aren't left-wing conspiracy theories. They certainly are out there. Um, You could think about a lot of ones that are focused on, for example, big companies. Um, you know, like 
industry is out to do something evil kind of thing. Um, 9-11 is one that tends to be more on the left than on the right, right? That, that has, has, that has unshifted in recent years. It first started as a left-wing conspiracy theory, but then it's become more libertarian where, you know, libertarians are known for just not wanting to have government interfere with their, their lives. And so, yeah, many, um, right-wing pundits have now engaged in that conspiracy theory. I mean, um, yeah. anyone that follows, um, Steven Crowder on YouTube will know that some of his, um, I guess his, his team have espoused this conspiracy theory. They, they've accepted it. And this is especially true when it comes to attacking, um, what's her name? Oh, Lindsay Cheney, I believe her. The name of the politician, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney. Yeah. There you go. So they'll use that as like a gateway to attack her. So I think our understanding of conspiracy theories have have shifted a little bit. I don't know if, if you agree with that assessment. Yeah. You probably know more about who believes in what conspiracy theories right now than mm -hmm. I do, right? Because I focus more on the psychology behind them in mm -hmm. general than like necessarily the details of specific ones. And so I actually rely on other people mm -hmm. to keep me up on sort of the details of what's going on. I, I, I don't think you deny that there are left-wing conspiracy theories, right? Um, They started out as left-wing, but have now shifted to right-wing. So I... You know, other than the um, the Russian collusion, I can't think of a current conspiracy theory that's left wing, and I might be biased to that. You know, and I was going to ask you when you gave the example of um big corporations, what would be an example of that of a current left wing conspiracy theory that involves an organization? Um, on the left, it's not uncommon to see. I, I mean, I think anti GMO would be an example of. Some stuff around Monsanto, for example, tends to be a left-wing conspiracy theory. Um, Is that political? Big pharma stuff tends to have a little bit more prevalence on the left. Uh, I mean, I will say the exception here is the COVID vaccine, right? That has yeah. tended to be more mm -hmm. right-wing. But more broadly, uh, vaccine skepticism certainly was more of a left-wing issue prior mm -hmm. to COVID-19. Um You know, they don't all fit cleanly, right? And so mm -hmm. conspiratorial mindset isn't always partisan in nature but i do think that we see them on both sides mm. i mean one question is what do you what do you consider a conspiracy theory right because a conspiracy to me um a conspiracy theory is a a belief that posits that certain actors behind the scene are are working together we kind of avoid saying whether or not it's true and so you know, from that approach, you could also say that there's things like uh, Russian collusion, which I get, I I would bet you would argue is a true thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I haven't. That's still into a conspiracy it. theory. Yeah, I I can't comment on that because I didn't look into the details of it. I just know that certain people claim it as a conspiracy theory, so I just label it as that. It might not be. But we, I mean, we certainly saw people going beyond probably the evidence to claim things like. Um, Trump was being controlled by Russia in a way that went beyond just might be influenced, but was actually a puppet, right? And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, we, we don't know whether or not that's true. We don't have full, you know, view of the world. But the idea that there are them, that they exist on the left and the right, I think that that's true. Um, if you're asking me, like, is it more prevalent on the right right now? I think, like I said, the data says definitely yes, it's mm -hmm. more prevalent on the right. Uh, the question is why? So I think that's where there's still an interesting debate. Is it just 
an idiosyncratic, an idiosyncratic kind of thing where right now they're more prevalent on the right, maybe because the left has been disempowered um, and is feeling a lack of control? Mm-hmm. Or is it something more fundamental about um, the politics of the left and the right and those ideologies? I don't think that we have a good answer to yet. So is it something about more conservative versus liberal ideology that lends itself one way or the other? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, it could just be the moment in history we are that we are in, and it can involve other things like, like you said, profit motives. Mm-hmm. Certain organizations that spread them have succeeded on one side, um, and maybe there's less of those on another side. You know, it, it's it's hard to tell. Yeah, you know, um, I feel like I can at least I'll offer my input to it and why there is an increase in conspiracy um, theorizing on the right than there is on the left, and it's because of the um, dramatic social change that's occurring. If you look at any conspiracy theory, I mean, most of it is about attacking traditional values. You know, the, the this is why we have the um, conspiracy theories about the LGBT, you know, critical race theory. We, we see um, conspiracy theories about um, EMF radiation, the fact that we're going from like 4G to 5G. I mean, that that's the progression is just too fast for people and they have no time to at least assess what's going on. And when you think about conservatives, by definition, like in their principles, they're about conserving tradition and left-wing, you know, ideology just embraces, you know, this progress. And I think that is why we see a lot of um, conspiracy theories on the right, because it's just attacking what used to be. And I think- um, Well, I think, go ahead. And I, to say, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, that, that's essentially the the fact that we're moving at a fast pace that makes conservatives just too uncomfortable. So I think you're right that, I mean, we think about when, I don't have a ton of data on this, but my mm-hmm. sense of when conspiratorialism picked up on the right, it was when President Obama was in office. Right. And at that time, we were really, I think, optimistic on the left that this was the country was trending in a, a leftward direction, you know, mm-hmm. and that was the direction we we're going. And probably the people who are more conservative did feel disempowered. And that is something that can lead to more conspiratorial thinking. Um, I think what'll be interesting to see now in the US, at least, you know, we've got a Supreme Court that's looking like it's going to be conservative for a long time. Mm-hmm. That it's going, you know, and 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 we're dealing with things like gerrymandering that is likely that has in certain states kept uh, minority rule essentially, and mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to see what happens from here going forward. So n- now that the left feels maybe more disempowered, do we see a rise on their side? I think it's something worth tracking and seeing what happens. Yeah, it, it would be interesting, and I. I don't know. Again, this might be just be my bias because I, I do identify as a progressive, but um, unless it's something you know dramatic, I just don't see that the conspiratorial nature on the left compared to on the right. But you know, like you said, time will tell. And you know, if eight years from now, you know, progressives are not spreading conspiracy theories, I'll be looking at this podcast like, damn, man, I was, I was all. Well, one of the things is it's very hard to recognize conspiracy theories on our side because we don't think of them as that. We think of them as accurate perceptions of the world, right? It's that mm-hmm. it's that naive realism idea. Are you familiar with this concept in social no, psychology? I'm not. So naive realism basically says we have a tendency to believe that we see the world objectively when we're when we're given data. 
right? That's our basic assumption. And then when somebody disagrees with us, we assume one of two things. One, they just don't have the right information. And so that leads us to just want to give them the information we have. Mm -hmm. And as we probably all know, that's not usually very convincing to people, right? You just say that, well, just read this article or watch this video, Mm -hmm. right? And we know conspiracy believers do this all the time. You just have to watch this video and you watch the video and you're like, that was terrible, right? (laughs) I'm unconvinced by it. So when we do that and we give them the information and they're still unconvinced, then we assume they're irrational or biased. But we don't change our view that maybe our views are biased. So it's one of those just human nature things. We're really hard at recognizing our own irrational beliefs because if we thought that they were not irrational, we thought they were rational and not evidence-based, we would update them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it's harder to recognize conspiratorial thinking in our own minds and in our own side. And mm-hmm. that's one of the big ideas. Is I think we like to think of conspiracy theorists as the other. But we're all there. We're all conspiracy believers to some extent. We all make them in our head, you know, and maybe some amount of it is probably functional in society. Mm -hmm. It catches bad actors. Real conspiracies do happen. So some of that theorizing is helpful to help us find the real bad actors, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, people differ, and there's some people Mm -hmm. kind of run way too far with this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we're all conspiracy theorists, at least to some extent. I Every one of us holds some irrational belief, right? We just, we don't know which ones they are. I'm still holding to the idea that the left wing of politics in America isn't as conspiratorial as the right. And you use the example of the anti-GMO movement, but I wouldn't consider that a left wing conspiracy theory because for one, the perpetrator is not a political force, you know, Monsanto, it's just a, a multi- what are they, an agricultural company, if I'm correct? And two, the conspiracy about GMOs derives from nature base. I'm not saying that conservatives, uh, one or the other, believes in it more, but what I'm arguing is that I wouldn't consider that a, a political conspiracy theory because it's just a conspiracy theory that GMOs is going against nature. And when you go against nature, you can put that on any side, you know, the left or the right. So I go back to my question of if you can give an example of what is a current left-wing conspiracy theory, excluding like, yeah. know, the, the Russian collusion. I, I don't want to get wanna... too yeah, I don't want to get too bogged down in examples, but I'll mm-hmm. I I will question whether or not you just made a little bit of a no truth Scotsman kind of fallacy there. The idea that if you identify one, you're like, well, that one doesn't count because it doesn't have these features. I'd argue that you said it's not a political conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. right? That wasn't that wasn't the criteria, right? So I, I, when I think about conspiracy theories, I think about them more broadly. If you're asking, mm-hmm. like, is it based in left-wing ideology? I think skepticism of, uh, you know, if you want to talk about traditional forces, you, you said mm-hmm. conspiracy theories tend to be worried, focused on reacting to progress. I think that's one group of them, but there's also mm-hmm. ones that are conspiracy theories about uh, existing powers, right? The the mm-hmm. conservativists, the traditional institu- institutions mm-hmm. that hold power and that prevent progress, right? There's plenty around that as well. And I think that that tends to be more what a left-wing conspiracy theory looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Is that it, it questions established institutions and holders of power, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whereas... I think what you're saying is right-wing conspiracy theories tend to look maybe more like uh, questioning the forces of progress, right? Yeah. And I putting think... yourself in the in the victim place, even mm-hmm. when you hold power, right? Even when you hold the, the power of the large institutions, you're being attacked by outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
Yeah. When it comes to conspiracy theories, yeah, there, the two that I can think about, there's political conspiracy theories and then there's conspiracy theories about nature. You know, when it comes to nature, I mean, those anyone believes in them. I mean, 5G, for example, like, w- would you agree that 5G is a political conspiracy theory? Um, so I think I, I, I'm not sure that I think of, I'll have to think about it. I'm not sure mm. that I think of conspiracy theories as being inherently political or apolitical. I think they can develop political content, but I don't mm. think that, it, I think when we think about it, it's that groups pick different ones to latch mm. on to, but it's not necessarily the content of the conspiracy theory itself that hundred percent determines that. So for example, in the case of Trump, Right. Mm-hmm. We saw this move towards questioning vaccines mm-hmm. and them embracing anti-vax conspiracy theories on the right. If Trump had said, hey, this is my vaccine, I developed it through this Project Warp Speed and you should all take it, would they have gone that route? Not necessarily, right? No. And this goes along with all those studies that we've seen that that show that when you present people arguments from the opposite side of the political spectrum, but claim mm-hmm. or or positions, you know, stances public policy positions, and you tell them it's from their own side, they support them, right? So it's not mm-hmm. about the actual content of the conspiracy, just like it's not about the content of the policy positions. Mm-hmm. It's about whether or not your side supports them, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's the us versus them intergroup dynamics. The nature thing is interesting. I think another informal logical fallacy that falls into the appeal to nature. And that's mm-hmm. definitely something that I see more prevalent on the left. Now, keep in mind, Informal logical fallacies don't mean you're wrong. It just means that the logic you're using to get there isn't necessarily sound. You may still get to the right answer, but not mm-hmm. through sound logic. Uh, but what they say is that, hey, your, your logic there isn't very sound. And so that appeal to nature fallacy is the idea that things that are natural are fundamentally better, safer, mm-hmm. you know. And and yeah, I do agree. You see a lot more of that on the left, that appeal to nature as an explanation mm-hmm. for why something's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting conversation, and we can go back and forth, you know. With, with uh, I think we, I think we actually agree on quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, we we agree more than we disagree, so we'll we'll leave it at that. On the next question, I wanted to ask you is about social media. Now, the last person I had on was Eva Gallagher, and one of the questions that I asked her was whether the removal of conspiratorial content was an effective way of mitigating conspiratorial thinking. And her response was that it wasn't, but that social media websites had the right to do so. My question for you is that should social media websites be held responsible for the increase in conspiratorial thinking that we have seen in the last two years? And the reason why I'm asking this question is because among the political right, whenever their content is removed, the first thing that they cry out is, oh, my First Amendment right has been violated but they fail to recognize that the the First Amendment is in regards to you know government institutions, and so the political left will celebrate this. At the same time, the left will then say that we should regulate these social media institutions using external forces. And I often wonder if that's even you know possible, and if it's even consistent with our principles. Because if we agree that social media websites are private businesses. Do they not have the right to implement whatever policies they have? Um, and so, yeah, my question for you is: Should we blame me, uh, social media websites on the conspiracy theories that we've seen, or is it up to the individual to determine how much information they consume on a daily basis? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I always hesitate to put too much onus on individual actors. We we already ask a lot of people and to ask them to then navigate the, you know, when in COVID, they called it the infodemic. It's this overwhelming amount of information being thrown at you, some good, some bad, and asking you to sort through it as an individual. I think that's too high a burden to place on people who have lots of other things going on in their lives and can't be full-time internet sleuths trying to sort out fact from fiction, right? Mm-hmm. You talked yourself when we were chatting briefly about how much research you have to put in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And this is just one thing you're spending a lot of time on. Imagine you know, asking you to do that, literally everything mm-hmm. you run across. Yeah, I, I think it's too much. And and I know that I don't do it well. So when I see something that I agree with, whether it's a, a, a meme or or just a post, I go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. When I disagree with it, I go check those fact-checking sites. Mm-hmm. I don't do that on the stuff I agree with. So even if we ask individuals to do it, we're not very good at it, right? We're we're good at finding out why something we disagree with is wrong, mm-hmm. and we accept things we like. You know, conf- classic confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I don't think you can put it on the in- individual. I don't know if regulating it is the right answer. So in terms of removing the content, it, when we talked about what you should do, what social media can do to stop things, we threw that in there as one thing that social media companies can choose to do. And the reason that that would work is that preventing exposure to conspiracy theories, especially when people are already vulnerable to them. So, for example, during the lockdown, we found people's sense of control went down and they became more supportive of leaders who espoused conspiracy theories. Basically, they became more open to people espousing conspiracy theories and more likely to listen to them. So preventing exposure to conspiracy theories, channeling that need for control in other ways, that could be helpful. Um, putting disclaimers on there that run at the same time, those kinds of things, they do work some. They do help with things like misinformation. Uh should we require that of companies? That's a political question, right? That's over my head about how you go about doing this. But if you're asking me if it's a tool in the toolkit that helps them, yes. The problem, I think, that a lot, for a lot of social media companies is they did this after so many conspiracy theories had already spread. Mm-hmm. And then people felt like their ideas were being censored mm-hmm. after it had already spread to a lot of people. Certainly, it's the case that social media itself does things that are not intended to spread conspiracy theories, but that unintentionally do. Things like the algorithms that are meant to increase engagement end up promoting conspiratorial content to people. So there's certainly aspects of it that I think warrant some more thought. In terms of who should who should do what? Should we require things? I, I don't know. Like I said, that's a political question. That's a question of of how do you create responsibility? You know, I know there's Section 230 of the Communications Act and mm-hmm. and both the left and the right and a big debate there. Those are complex issues where I'd say, go find a political scientist who can help you sort through <laughs> that. Because I don't, that's a tough question. I don't have the answers for that. There seems to be pros and cons to things like that. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know either because, look, as a, as a person that does this as a hobby, and when I look at conspiracy theories and how they've affected people, I mean, it's a public health concern. I mean, I think we can both agree on that. But at the same time, there's that part of me that's like, these are private institutions. And I, and I would not feel comfortable having, you know, government running these social media platforms. I mean, that, that goes against what it means to, to be a conservative, for example. And so it's, it's not easy. And I, and I don't know if anyone really has the the solution to it. As you said, you know, this is more of a, of a political question in figuring out what should be done. Because you know, at the same time, one can say that you don't 
necessarily need to be on social media. I mean, when you're born, you're given, you know, a birth certificate and, and your social security number, but you know, the nurse doesn't come with your uh, Facebook account. You know, that's, that's something that we chose to do. We, as a consumer, we want to be there. So one can make the argument that it's up to the individual to determine how much information a person will consume. Again, there, I know plenty of people that don't have social media for this very reason. I, for example, don't have a Twitter because I know what a, you know what that environment is like. And so I make that conscious decision. And I think one can make the argument that it's up to the individual. So I think this is, if I were to put on my business school professor hat here, mm -hmm. I would say this is where incentives can matter. So right now, the only incentive or, um, social media companies have is to increase engagement so they can sell more advertisements and they can make more money off of advertisements from highly engaged users, right? Mm -hmm. The way that I think you transform these things without having to get into becoming the arbiter of truth on social media as a government, which I think both the left and the right would feel somewhat uncomfortable with, mm -hmm. right? Is that you have to figure out a way to change the incentives for these companies to make other things matter. Um, and so broadly speaking, I'd argue that the shareholder view of companies that has taken over since basically Milton Friedman, the idea that companies exist to serve shareholders only, mm -hmm. that is a problem. Uh, what we need is a stakeholder view that recognizes companies have responsibilities, not just to shareholders, but to their employees, to their customers, to the broader community, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one way. How do we... And there's been arguments from CEOs who basically say, I have to serve shareholders or else I'll get sued. So how do we change the legal landscape to make this broader view of the of responsibilities, you know, more viable for publicly held companies? Um, also, you know, the free market works, but it works when it's well-regulated. Right? It works when those markets are properly regulated. And so how do we create incentives for companies to not just care about advertisements, but also care about other impacts they're having on, on society. So if you think about this in a climate change context, this is where we talk about things like carbon taxes, so that we're making sure that the external consequences that a company is having that they're not paying for actually comes in as a cost to them. You don't have to tell them that they can't do a thing. You just make sure that they're fully realizing the costs of the actions they're taking, mm -hmm. right, that are affecting the broader environment. And so in that way, like, you don't have to come in and tell them exactly what to do. You just have to make sure that that's those incentives are there. So what is the equivalent of a carbon tax, but in a social media environment with misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. What kinds of things do we have to do to change their incentives without directly regulating them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that response. And, you know, it's a feel good response in a sense, because, you know, we're not using external forces to to mandate them to change anything. It's more of a, you know, instead of saying you must, it's a question of you should and changing the incentive, I think, is an effective way of protecting the community from, you know, disinformation, disinformation conspiracy theories. So yeah, you know, I, I definitely agree with that, what you just said there. Well, I mean, also think about Twitter right now, right? We It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but we're seeing people leave Twitter because they're concerned about disinformation and conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. So we also have the ability to act collectively as consumers to demand what we want from them. Now, that kind of collective action is harder. And I think the psychology works against us in some ways in terms of you know, we, we find conspiracy theories appealing, so it's hard to reject them. But if we, you know, as consumers take stances, we can have, we can change the incentives for companies. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm certain that Elon Musk is not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm pretty sure that he cares about his, you know, his profits. So he's definitely going well, to- Well, 
So he did remember his first tweet after taking on Twitter was to spread an anti LBGTQ conspiracy theory about Nancy Pelosi's wife, uh, husband, the attack on Paul Mm -hmm. Pelosi. So, you know, he, he's definitely trafficked in conspiracy theories. Mm. He's also said some things about uh, gas companies sort of being out to get Tesla, you know, companies that make gas powered Mm. cars. So, and then again, going to back to what we said earlier, this is where business intersects with conspiracy theories and misinformation. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I have to look into that, but thank you for, for telling me about that. Uh, the next question I wanted to ask you is about um, the future of conspiracy theories. So during the height of the pandemic in 2020, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory ideologies uh, exploded. Now, two years later, death rates from COVID-19 have dropped but have conspiracy theories declined in the same way? If not, is it of your opinion that this new form of conspiracy theory thinking is here to stay? And I hope that made sense. It does. Um, So I'm a scientist, so I'll tell you, I don't have data to tell you if it's come down or gone up. It's Mm -hmm. an interesting question. It's one I want to look at, uh, but I don't have an answer for that right now. Uh, If you're asking me broadly, is this here to stay? I think. So I think some of the forces at play during the pandemic that tended to make people more susceptible to conspiracy theories are probably still there, uh, feeling a lack of control, right? Um, the partisan polarization that makes it more and more us versus them. Those forces aren't going away. But let's say certain news outlets that have tend to tended to spread conspiracy theories to certain audiences, right? If those things structurally don't change, then I suspect we're going to be in a similar environment for a while. Uh, if those, and you know, we're potentially headed into a recession, right? That's going to tend to increase conspiratorial thinking. When you lose your job, you know, you need something mm-hmm. to latch on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, groups that are disempowered are going to suffer even more during that. And so, you know, it's, um, anyways. Don't need to get into economics. So broadly, unless the forces change, the answer is I I think the current environment remains. The specific beliefs, even if we change the forces, I I don't have good evidence, but my sense is that the specific beliefs get retained. It's not like people are going to stop believing in birtherism or something. Mm -hmm. They just become, those beliefs become less important. They don't play as big a role in your life. They kind of fade into the background, you know. They don't. They're not driving your thinking every day. But I don't know that people necessarily update those beliefs easily. Oh, um, man, I just hearing you talk about that doesn't gives me a a pessimistic, you know, view of the future. Because as I mentioned earlier, we have Fox News, we have the Daily Wire, we have Newsmax. What else? One News America. I mean, I follow them on Facebook just to like see what's going on and they get comments and it's just disheartening. And I, I can't speak for, for One News America, but um, when it comes to like Newsmax and like the Daily Wire and these, you know, right-wing um, news media outlets, I mean, I don't see them going away anytime soon, specifically Ben Shapiro. I mean, the guy has a, a multi-million, um, multi-million business. I mean, he has Jordan Peterson in it. And I think it's change the way that we um view conspiracy theories and the fact that now we have a conspiracy theory machine that's been normalized into mainstream society um just i don't know it doesn't look good so that 
I mean, there are ebbs and flows. There's always this question of, are we in this golden age of conspiracy theories? And mm-hmm. and certainly some scholars have made the argument that we've always thought that at every age, that this is the worst time, and that some amount of background conspiratorial thinking is just, it's just normal in society. So maybe don't despair too much. The other thing I'll tell you is uh, Van Prusian and Aker have a wonderful article that shows that the relationship between your sense of control in your life and conspiratorial thinking is hydraulic. That means that when you lose sense of control, you tend to increase your conspiratorial beliefs. It also means the opposite, which is that um, if we increase your sense of control, then your belief in conspiracy theories goes down. And so empowering people is a really good way. And giving them that, even if it's that sense of personal agency or giving people more control in their lives, you know, the kinds of policies that probably progressives would advocate for, and you call yourself progressive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, giving people universal health care. So health care isn't tied to their job. They're not but worried not about But not everyone wants bills. that. I mean, if you talk I'm, about universal health care, I mean, uh, Ben Shapiro would just say you're um, bringing communism. You're trying to spread socialism. I mean, we, we have the, you know, the communist scare currently. I mean, you would think that these policies would be favorable, but they're not. And people like, you know, the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, they promote this talking point to their um to their audience members i mean i go back to i don't know if i mentioned this earlier but when right-wingers spread their conspiracy theories it's the idea that um western civilization is, is being attacked they're trying to you know uh um, tucker carlson does this best you know they're trying to replace us and we we now have this um conspiracy theory machine that's just producing conspiracy theories like every 15 minutes. I mean, follow the Daily Wire on um, on Facebook and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. It's just constant conspiracy theories about the left. And I don't know, that, that's just my observation. I, I don't, and I think we can both agree that we're more divided than, we, than we've been in the last 20 years. I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. Would you not say? There's certainly more, yeah, there's more particle, uh, partisan polarization and that's pretty clear. Um, we used to have overlap in liberalism versus conservatism between Democrats and Republicans, and now it's completely divided by party. So there's definitely more polarization, and that creates a bunch of problems for sure. I think, um, yeah, I hear you, the, the, the idea that there, this constant flow of conspiracy theories is, is coming out there, but I think that what I'm getting at is the underlying issue is people feeling disempowered. And that happens to people who are both on the left and the right. Uh, I think the reason you see people latching on to those things that you see from uh, Breitbart or the Daily Wire, you know, is is that they are feeling in some way disempowered. Uh, and I think that the extent that you can give back people control over their lives and power, and some of that is through improving their economic circumstances and, you know, their socioeconomic class, right? Mm-hmm. Um I, I think you could find common ground. There are policies that have a lot more broad support that are not politically viable right now for, you know, reasons that have more to do with our political system in the U.S. than whether or not people support them. Um, so I think that I guess what I'm saying is that the political goals that probably we can agree on in the right and the left are probably the same things that would reduce conspiracism. Now, if you want to have skepticism about the future because you're like, well, none of those things are ever going to happen, that's a reasonable place to start. But then I'd say that your path forward is to become politically active, to Mm -hmm. engage that personal agency, go out there and make things happen, hold politicians accountable, make policies for which there is broad-based support happen. Uh, We need to be engaged. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I try to be as active as I possibly can. And, you know, 
like you said, we, we don't know the future. So in the next four, maybe eight years, we'll, we'll see where the nation lies when it comes to conspiracy theories. Uh, I'm just hoping that it's a better one than what we're currently living when it comes to just conspiracy theories and disinformation. Well, so one of the interesting arguments that's been made recently in the literature is the idea that we tend to think of conspiracy theories as driving all of these negative behaviors. And some of the sort of preliminary data I've seen is that conspiracy theories drive behavior. Like um, belief in COVID conspiracy theories does drive unwillingness to get vaccinated, but that it's actually bi-directional, right? The existing desire not to get vaccinated also drives the conspiracy belief. And so it's not just that conspiracy theories are solely driving behavior, but the, the direction, the, the relationship is two ways. And actually, part of that is because there might be other third things going on that are driving both. So it is things mm-hmm. like being disempowered that are both driving skepticism, let's say, of public health institutions and a desire to believe in conspiracy theories. And so there might be more fundamental issues, and we shouldn't over-attribute the causes of problematic behaviors solely to conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Now. I still think that they play a role in reinforcing uh, or leading to more extreme behaviors, right? They tend to amp things up a level. Uh, they make people more entrenched in their positions in terms of what they will and won't do. But I don't think they're solely responsible for the bad behaviors. And one of the arguments we made in one of our papers was that sometimes you can target behaviors directly. So, for example, we have some preliminary data that suggests that getting people to think about themselves rather than as individuals, but in relationship to others, makes them more likely to get vaccinated, regardless of whether or not they believe in a conspiracy theory. So we don't always have to attack the conspiracy theory itself. Sometimes we can attack the specific negative consequences of it. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting that that you brought up, you know, behavior, because that's, it's going to, you know, perfectly lead us to, you know, the next question and whether conspiracy theories lead to political extremism or as um, some psychologists like to call it, encapsulated psychosis. Now, I am aware that you don't have a, a background in in mental health. So, but when it comes to um, conspiracy theories, when I read the literature, I often see experts like yourself talk about how con- the effect of conspiracy theories will lead to will lead to um, political extremism. But I wonder if that paints the whole picture because prior to the pandemic, for the last twenty years conspiracy theorists would often be described as fear-oriented, where they would be afraid of the existential threat. A good example of this are vaccines. You know, Anti-vaxxers would avoid getting vaccinated um, because they thought that you know, autism, it would kill them, you know, infertility, whatnot. But during the pandemic, we saw an evolution of the conspiratorial mindset where they became more active, more aggressive, more hostile. And a good example of this is the conspiracy theory on 5G, when people were burning down cell phone towers in England, Australia, and here in the United States. And a good example to reinforce what I'm trying to say is the case of um, Jeffrey Burnham. So Jeffrey Burnham, he killed his brother and his uh, his sister-in-law because he thought that his brother, who was a pharmacist, was participating in the depopulation of you know the world. Another good example is of Matthew Taylor Coleman, who was a father of two. And one day he went to pick up his children, took them somewhere. And then when his when his wife called um, asking where the children were, no phone response. She called the police. And when they found him, they realized that he had killed his two children because he thought that 
his two kids were becoming members of the Anunnaki race. This is the uh, reptilian elite conspiracy theory. And so should we start thinking about conspiracy theories from a pathological perspective? And I just want to get your opinions on this. Yeah. So like you said, I don't have a mental health background and I don't really have a really strong grasp on encapsulated psychosis. It sounds a little bit similar to something we talk about uh, in the conspiracy theory literature called uh, monological belief system. And this is the idea that conspiracy theories are just these mutually reinforcing set of beliefs that are kind of cut off from the rest of the world to some extent. So I don't know if that resonates with you. So my my understanding of um, encapsulated psychosis is essentially it's um people that are high functioning with delusional beliefs. And for mm. the listeners, um, what high functioning means is that, for example, if a person has um schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, if you're low functioning, chances are that you are going to be in the street, homeless, or in a psychiatric ward, because low-functioning individuals cannot function in a society. They can't maintain um, housing, employment, and whatnot. If you're a functioning, if you're a high-functioning individual with schizophrenia, that informs the the practitioner that you are able to maintain a job. You're able to take, you know, your medications, go to psychotherapy, meet your daily needs. And so, encapsulated psychosis implies that. A person is able to function in a society, you know, perfectly fine, but then they have these delusions of like 5G that really aren't um, expressed outwards. They're just kept inside. And the people that I just mentioned, in my opinion, could fit this um, description because these were individuals that prior to their conspiratorial um, ideologies were just regular people. They had no, at least for um, Matthew Taylor Coleman, I can't speak for Jeffrey Burnham. But these were individuals that were perfectly fine before they had succumbed to their conspiratorial ideologies. And so I've always wondered, like, yeah, I agree that conspiracy theories can lead to political extremism, but could they also lead to, you know, a mental disorder? Yeah. So what so probably conspiratorial beliefs or conspiratorial thinking, which is sort of the the mindset or it's also sometimes called conspiratorial mindset that makes you prone to that. It's probably similar to narcissism and that we think of narcissism as both a trait, but at an extreme version of it as a personality disorder. Right. And my guess is that conspiracy, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here. Right. Mm -hmm. So with all the caveats that this is outside my field mm -hmm. and it's dangerous to listen to a PhD when they get outside their field. <laughs> but I my, my guess is that it's probably something similar where conspiratorial thinking is both a personality trait, not a personality trait, but like an individual difference, like a trait of people. But there is some extreme version that falls all the way into disordered, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because it inhibits your function or it leads to these kind of negative consequences. Now, I I caution a little bit. The same caveat I discussed before is it's hard to know how much conspiracy theories were solely the cause of that behavior versus something that channeled it in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that conspiratorial belief is a complex phenomenon. And both of these things or all of these things give you different lenses on it. And mm -hmm. neither, none of them, I think, fully explain it. So is it a partisan political, is it about political polarization? Yeah, in a lot of cases it is. But anytime you say it's just one thing, you're going to find exceptions that fall out, right? <laughs> is it yeah. encapsulated psychosis? Maybe that explains some of it too, but there's going to be exceptions that don't seem to fit into there as well. And so they're all lenses in which we can learn more about it and better understand it. But I always caution about getting too locked into one view of a thing. Yeah, that's a perfect response. I've also fallen into that um that same trap because you know I think last 
in the last episode, we were talking about, you know, what defines a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, there's just so many um, criterias to it. And really, like, who who gets to determine what makes a conspiracy theorist is complex enough. Now, to ask the question, you know, what causes conspiratorial ideology, I mean, that's just a whole different thing. And there's so many diff- different disciplines. I mean, I try my best not to generalize. And so I think what you're saying is absolutely true, to not generalize one explanation to explain a giant social phenomenon i mean what i just stated you know matthew taylor coleman is not true for like alex jones for example i mean those are two different people they're conspiracy theorists but they're two different people you think about something like QAnon, and it's all about trusting the plan and so very much i think part of why that conspiracy theory persisted and was successful is it didn't actually ask people to act Somebody like Alex Jones doesn't actually want people to storm the Capitol because that creates liability for him. Like you said, Mm -hmm. it it disrupts his the profit he's making on it. He wants Mm -hmm. to keep people engaged with the conspiracy theories, but not acting in ways that actually cause problems for him. Mm -hmm. Right. Not actually acting on it. That's problematic. So, you know, I do think that there are versions of conspiracy theories that kind of actually ask you not to do a whole lot. Um, Do you think that um, there should be more research? on the mental health aspect of conspiracy theories? Um, there's probably some space to do it there. I would, but I, I don't, I don't know if there is a truly unique phenomenon there where conspiracy theories are themselves driving mental health issues. I'm not sure that that's not captured in existing things. Like you said, encapsulated psychosis, uh, other underlying mental health disorders that are then being exasperated by conspiracy theories. But I don't know enough about the mental health space to to comment, you know, real intelligently on (laughs) on what should be happening there. I mean, I will say, in general, as scientists, what we do is we make simplifications of the world and we come up with these constructs and we name them things like conspiratorial thinking. But with a recognition that is a simplification of the world, it's trying to help us better understand it, but Mm -hmm. it's not a perfect description of the true complex world. Behavior is never caused by one thing. It's multiply caused. We see correlations all the time, which is to say, <clears throat> when this happens, this tends to happen, but it's a correlation. It doesn't mean every person who encounters A will do B. Mm-hmm. People are just not that predictable. So mm-hmm. it, it's complex. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> and so, yeah, final question before, you know, we conclude. And again, I want to thank you so much for your time. And this one is just regards to mental health. And as a person that is a social worker, as a, as a graduate student in social work, how do you take care of your mental health? Being that, you know, being a, a researcher in conspiracy theories, I mean, this is not a an easy job. So you know, how do you enjoy life and not be sucked into the, you know, the rabbit hole? It's a good question. Um, so I limit how much time I actually spend engaged with conspiracy theories. So I keep a little bit up on what's going on. But it's a relatively small part of my life. And then, you know, the things that affect your mental well-being that are linked to happiness are kind of the everyday things that you do in life. And so I get to spend time with my family. I spend a lot of time teaching and I love interacting with my students, right? There's other things that kind of compensate. And so I just don't make it too much of a focus in my life. The other thing is I, I spend a lot of time studying the psychology of it, finding ways to combat it. That's helpful. Um, but I'm more focused on the psychology of it than what the latest thing is. And and when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I tune out. And like you, I don't spend a ton of time on social media either. Mm-hmm. Um, so limiting the, those interactions that are the, the kinds of things that I think can slowly drive you up a wall. 
Yeah. <laughs> what What do you do? How do you How do you stay sane as a, a podcaster? How do I? Oh man, now you're putting me on the spot. You know, enjoy sleep. I guess that's. I mean, sleep. You know, as a graduate student, we don't get enough of it. Plus, my internship and doing a podcast. But I enjoy the little moments. You know, um, recently my um my girlfriend, uh, her sister had a child, and so I I spent time with him. You know, shout out to little Ezekiel. And so, you know, I just enjoy those moments. I, you know, if whatever's going on in the world, if someone's calling me a, a farmer shill or a sheeple, I, you know, I pass. I'm done with the the whole, you know, argument, you know, trying to get people angry. I'm just trying to relax. Life is too short. I mean, literally life is too short to, to be arguing with a random person on Facebook. So that's how I keep my mental health unchecked. I mean, this is more your area of expertise than mine. So <laughs> you give advice to all of us on how to better survive this world. Don't, our mental health impact. Yeah. For, <laughs> if anyone like Van Proyzian or Yuzinski is listening, just relax and put the phone down and watch a sport, TV, movie. Wakanda came out. So, you know, good, good ways to, to relax. But anyway, so <clears> Professor <throat> Dow, um, it's been an honor you know, to speak to you. I will continue following your work, the research that you published. And for the listeners, do you have uh, any like place where like you consistently post so the uh, listeners can like follow you or you're just off? Now, this is the beauty of the beauty of being an academic is I only talk to other academics and not real people. Um, no, <laughs> I, you can find me. So you can find my email address uh, and I'm happy to respond to direct inquiries. I do have a Twitter account, mm. uh, which is Benjamin J. Dow. And you're welcome to, I don't, I post very rarely, but I, you're welcome to message me and I will likely respond. Um, so there's ways to reach out to me, but I don't, I don't uh, have any place where I uh, am building up a listening audience. I rely on people like you to get the word out for us. No, and that's why I'm here for. So again, um, it's an honor to give you a platform. It's an honor to speak to you. And like I told um, Aoife Gallagher, you know, you are inspiration to me as a person that's trying to pursue a PhD in this field. So thank you so much for everything that you've done. Happy to happy to chat. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. <clears throat> with that being said, remember, question everything with logic. Hi again. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information on Dr. Benjamin Dow, I'll be leaving a link to his Twitter, as well as his academic research articles on the show notes below. I'll also be including scholarly journals from other academics that I have used in the past that have informed my perspective about the development of conspiracy theories. And because I feel like it's appropriate, I'll be including my interview with Tim Saunders, an anti-EMF spokesperson who I spoke to earlier this year. I believe by listening to my conversation with him, it can offer a better insight if 5G conspiracy theories are politically or nature-based. If you enjoy what I had to offer, be sure to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. With that being said, I'll see you on the next one as we continue our journey in understanding the conspiratorial mindset. Take care.